Case you, uh, you know, it's amazing how how the the audience is split right, right smack down the middle. That either people think that's an abomination, and uh, they say, "Yeah, quit playing that rotten, ridiculous, obscene toy, Shepard. You're too, you're too intelligent for that. Please stop playing it immediately, or I, as a regular listener, will refuse to listen to you any longer." Blah blah blah. Then there's the other kind who relates so totally with the Jews are that uh, they almost vibrate uh, physically, uh, like, a, like a tuning fork. Uh, whenever they hear the sound of a Jews harp being played in the middle distance, it just splits right. I have never known anything that is as truly controversial. Now, uh, I want to show, show you another kind of a, uh, another sort of Jews harp uh, that... Uh, that uh, is, is, again, it's almost the ob- obvious uh, reversal of the Sicilian style. And I'm not uh, not attempting here to uh, to give you a, a tour, a guided tour of the Jews harp as an instrument. But uh, here, Herb, uh, what, what, what cut do you have on there? Okay, let's hear it. I'll see what we can do. All right, here we go. That's another time. <laughs> Completely different style, <laughs> and uh, you know. And I, I, I guess, I guess we here in America are are kind of uh, 
innocent in, in uh, what could be called art. I suspect that we're still vaguely emerging from the frontier life, and for that reason, we still think things like Campbell's soup cans are really great art. Uh, <laughs> we're, we're, we're quite innocent. And, you know, uh, I'll never forget the, the day that I had the, the great uh, awakening, uh, speaking of an art form, and even yet in this country there are just very few people who recognize this next art form I'm going to talk about as an art form. And uh, it is, you know, I, I suspect that uh, quite possibly maybe 500 years from now, that they may look back on our time, I'm talking about our century, and there will be preserved examples of this great form which we created. And I have, I have a feeling, too, that at any time in any given century, the art form of that century that's really important is not often recognized by the people of that time as being that important. It's just sort of functional. It's just there, you know, and they... They've created this thing, and they just kind of accept it. Uh, for example, back in the days of uh, people like Michelangelo and so on, when they were when they were doing their great uh, church art, uh, I don't think the people of that period really recognized it as, uh, as you know a, it, it'd be a thing that millions of people would eventually come to see, and it's uh, it's uh, kind of the the uh, the top art uh, of of that whole Renaissance period. It's the it's the important statement. They just looked upon it as part of their religion was just accepted that way. And uh, many of the artists of that period were not even considered artists, really. They were just considered uh, like carpenters, artisans. And uh, they would be hired to come in and do this church, and the people would pay him, and he would go his way. And uh, just like today, we hire an electrician. He comes in, he does his work, and that's the end of it. We hire a painter. He comes in and paints the building, and he leaves. Many people think of architects that way. An architect will come, and they say, I want you to design this... Uh, uh, design this uh, porch we want to put on the side here. He's he's a he's an artisan. Uh, he comes. He tells you uh, how many two by fours you need. And he makes this sketch, and he may have really created something that you know a hundred years from now people are going to look at and say, "How beautiful! Look at that stark simplicity. Look at that that uh, that functional statement. Why we don't do things like this anymore? That kind of thing." Well, uh, this uh, there's a lot to that. Let's take people like uh, stonemasons, for example. But back in the uh, early uh, 19th century, the late 17th century, when uh, these these carvings appeared, when when people would uh, would decorate their buildings, particularly in places like Paris and and uh, throughout Europe, you'd see these great, fantastic, magnificent gargoyles and these tremendous. Things. Well, the guys that did these things never considered themselves sculptures or anything. They were they were stonemason, so they'd get an order for uh, 500 gargoyles. Uh, seven allegorical figures, and the guy would take his chisel and he'd whack out seven allegorical figures. And uh, now today, people are going for you know hundreds of miles to photograph these things, and they're turning out books on them. And I suspect that we're also and have created a form which is now rapidly in decline. But we did create a form at one point around the mid part of the twentieth uh, century. Actually, it was earlier than that. I would say in the early. In the early quarter of the 20th century, a new form was created, and it, it, it existed briefly for about 10 or 12 years in its uh, really flowering form, and then it began to decline, as all art forms do. They ultimately decline. And I'll never forget. Now, do you have that, uh, that, that cut that John brought in? Now, hold it there for a second. 
when I discovered this form, up to that point I'd been walking around ignorant. And I, in large part, am today. But one day, a friend of mine, this was in Cincinnati, I was going to school out there and I had a job and I was doing things and and uh, just beginning to see that there was more to the world than uh, than Flash Gordon. Uh, there was more to uh, drawing than, say, uh, Prince Valiant. And uh, I was just beginning to suspect things. You know, we go through this period when we begin to see things that we never really realize. It's like the world is a giant iceberg. And... Uh, and the first uh, few years of our life, we only see a little tiny bit of it sticking up on the top. And then we begin to see how fantastically varied and infinitely complex it is. And I suppose that's called maturation. But uh, nevertheless, I was going through this period. And, and this friend of mine, whom I didn't really know too well, I shouldn't call him a friend. He was just sort of an acquaintance. But he sure turned me on to a thing. I, I'll never forget him for that. And he was an odd-looking guy, a tall, skinny guy with... Uh, uh, totally bald. He shaved his head. It wasn't that he was bald. He just shaved his head. And uh, he had a, had a curious, stark quality to him. He must have been six feet four. And uh, he was kind of lean, laconic type. And I just knew him sort of casually from around school. It was at the University of Cincinnati. And I uh, just knew him casually. And one day, uh, he was a teacher there. And, uh, of course, being a teacher, he had a certain aura about him. And one day... Uh, he, we got talking on a, on a Friday afternoon. He says, "Listen, uh, we got discussing something." And he said, "Are you you really curious to see? You want to? You really want to see something?" And I said, "Yeah." And a uh, odd look came in his eye. He said, "Well, I'll tell you what you do. You be at this address tomorrow at eleven o'clock in the morning." And he says, "Any of you in the class want to see this?" And two or three hands went up. And he says, uh, "You come on over eleven o'clock tomorrow morning." And he says, "And I'll see you at this address." And so the next Saturday I woke up and I thought, well, I, I, at first I thought maybe I wouldn't go. And then I said, oh, well, what the heck, you know, not much to do Saturday morning. So, And I was off and I didn't have any work or anything. So I, uh, I got my Ford and I drove over to this place. I had this battered old Ford. And it turned out to be a garage, just a plain, ordinary, crummy-looking garage standing there. Nothing except a couple of swinging doors and... Uh, a couple of shady-looking windows with tape over them. And outside of it was this guy, Woody. And uh, the three or four of us gathered, and he says, Okay, he says, now do you really want to see something? He says, I want to prepare you for this. He says, first of all, it's like nothing you've ever seen before. And uh, we didn't know what to expect. He, he, he played it very well and theatrically. And so he says, Okay, all right. He says, all right, you ready? And he takes his key ring out with a lot of keys, and he opens the lock on this garage door. It was a big four-car garage. And he swings the doors open, just swings them open. And the four of us walked into the gloom of this garage on a gray Saturday morning in Cincinnati. And I couldn't believe what I saw. It was that unreal. I couldn't believe it. And he reached up and he flicked on a neon light. You know the kind they have in garages, these long 
blue-looking argon-type freon lights, which made it even more spectacular. He flicked it on, and all of a sudden, this thing began to gleam with that light. And there it was. And from that time on, my aesthetics have never been the same. I mean, it's like if all of your life you believed that Sneaky Pete is the greatest tasting drink you ever had, and then all of a sudden you run into a fine French vintage year wine. There ain't no going back. Ain't no way to go back to Tab and Pepsi-Cola after one has tasted the outpouring of the Imperium Springs. There it was. And I'll venture to say not more than one out of 15 of you, even though, even when I tell you what it is, even have any faint idea of what I'm talking about. Not that you're, you know, stupid or anything, but you probably just haven't come into contact with it in the right way. We were looking at one of the great automobiles in the world. I mean, one of the great automobiles. By great, this car had appeared in probably two or three hundred catalogs of great masterworks. That specific car. Even today, that car is a... Even today, even more today, today, that car is almost priceless. It was one of the finest works of one of the great artists of the 20th century. Considered one, possibly his prime work. Ettore Bugatti. Did you ever hear the name? Ettore Bugatti. The maestro. A man who created automobiles the way Michelangelo created altar cloths. He created them as works of art. And there, resting on the floor, under that flickering neon light, was a dark, rich, plum-colored 57SC. One of the great moments in the career of a Torre Bugatti. An automobile that had been created expressly for a French duke late in the 1930s around 1937 a car built specifically for mountain driving a lithe magnificent evil sensual looking machine that lay low it didn't really squat on the floor it just sort of lounged there stretching out low and flat sensual and looking at that car, you could just, you, could just, you felt flight in every, in every inch of it. Not only flight, but movement and statement. And a curious kind of truth. It was so honest. It was a car. But it was a car the way you would never conceive of cars being. The difference between a Torre Bugatti 57SC and what we, we would consider a beautiful car today is the difference between uh, one of these 
dollar coffee mugs that you buy at Woolworths. With a picture of Donald Duck on the side. To a silver chalice turned out by Botticelli. To uh, add style to the life of a Venetian Grand Duke. It's a great world, a whole cultural world. In fact, it, it sort of spanned time that Ettore Bugatti was a Renaissance artist who somehow had been reincarnated in the 20th century. And he lived in a baronial style, as a great artist should, and he had helpers and devoted assistants who worshipped the ground he walked on. His factory was in France, not in Italy, but in France. And the Bugatti Enclave is legend today among people who know anything about 20th century art. And every car was turned out with the kind of care, love, and total artistry that, say, a Rembrandt would turn out uh, his work. And incidentally, a Rembrandt also had his apprentices who would fill in the background and deal with the, uh, the little details. Or did you know that? Oh, yes. And so, so Bugatti, a Torre Bugatti, created this fantastic master, and I had never heard of him. I just knew there was a thing called foreign cars. I didn't realize that there was one man to whom a car was not a car, and he spoke in a universal language. It was an art, pure and simple. Ettore Bugatti. Now, you want to hear a little more about Bugatti? Some of his great cars. You know, to, to, to throw uh, in a... Uh, so, you know, we're not used to thinking of the car as an art form. We're used to thinking that they are beautiful cars. We think that there's a, there's a great-looking, uh, maybe a classic car and so on. But we don't, we're not used to thinking of the car as an art form. But for a long time, considerably longer than we have, the Europeans have recognized it as such. It is an art form. And unfortunately, it's an art form that is in decline. Uh, and this is not anything to do with nostalgia. It's, it has to do with the, with the changing world, that the car has become a, uh, a utilitarian object, pure and simple. It wasn't always that way. And when Bugatti created his cars, it was... Uh, it was the day when uh, dukes, duchesses, kings, rajas, maharajas, viscounts, field marshals, uh, Ali Khans, people of that kind, when they wanted an automobile, when they wanted a car, they, they treated the car like the rest of their life. If they wanted a fine home, they didn't just go out and buy uh, uh, something off the gas pipe racks there would be a fine home, a chateau would be created for them. Their suits were done that way. Uh, if, uh, if, uh, if you were a Maharaja, you would travel to Savile Row uh, in London, uh, seven, eight thousand miles by boat, and finally you would arrive at your tailor, uh, Bond Street possibly, and he would create a wardrobe for you, and it would take months. You wouldn't just go there and get fitted. 
uh, he would create a wardrobe, and so it would take months of fitting, and he would he would stay there. He would stay in the in a, in a magnificent suite at uh, at a hotel in London while he was being fitted. Well, his uh, his car was really a carriage. <laughs> it was it was when he was when he was out. This automobile was was not a car really. It was not a means of transportation. It was that, of course, but it it, it was an extension of his personality, like everything else. And so a Toro Bugatti, this great artist, would create a car specifically for the man involved. And by the way, money wasn't the wasn't the criterion. So if you were a big bootlegger from Chicago, you couldn't just go over to France and talk to a Toro Bugatti and say you would like a car. Not like, you know, today. It's the money. You buy a car and that's it. Uh, it doesn't make any difference who you are. If you want to buy a Rolls, you can buy a Rolls Royce, not a Bugatti. Many people were turned down by the maestro. And all cars were ordered personally. You didn't go to your Bugatti dealer <laughs> and order a car any more than you went to your Rembrandt dealer and ordered a Rembrandt painted up. Yeah, and so uh, if, if you came to the enclave there and uh, he didn't like uh, the way you were, he didn't, uh, he didn't feel that you were you were fit to be driving a Bugatti, you just simply did not get a Bugatti. That was all to, all there was to it. He would suggest perhaps an Isada Fracini would be more suitable to you. Possibly a Maserati, but certainly not a Bugatti. Now, uh, <laughs> here's, here's, a, here's a quote, a, a little writing about Mr. Bugatti. This is called The Bugatti Mystique, and it's, it's from a book. Uh, I, I, I collect uh, literature on automobiles. And uh, this this is a fine little book. And I don't think anybody's really yet done in a serious way. I, I wish some really serious uh, biographer, instead of an automobile cuckoo, would do the, the life and times of a Toro Bugatti because he is such a symbolic figure, such a fantastic figure. And it would take somebody who's a really top biographer who dealt with Bugatti the way you, they, you would deal with, say, a, uh, a Picasso or you would deal, and incidentally, he's very much in the same league. He is in the same league. <laughs> don't you, don't you, don't you forget it? That I would say that a thousand years from now, Bugattis will be in museums just the way Picasso paintings are, and for the same reason, for their their artistic values. Here's what they say. Perhaps the most fascinating feature of the mystique which surrounds Etoro Bugatti and his automobile designs is the way it attracts men and some women of all ages as no other contemporary or even later creation manages to do. Elderly men recall the excitement of their youth, but something else appeals to the young man who was born when the car and even Bugatti himself were no more. The aesthetic appeal of his cars, especially the engines and the radiator shape, is undoubtedly a factor. To lift up the hood or bonnet of a Bugatti is to delight the eye with every sense. The shiny, rectangular, magnificently contrived shapes of the blocks, the cam boxes, the curving complications of inlet and exhaust manifolds, the interesting, subtly uh, sinister ribbing of the blower casing, externally four large, narrow wheels at the corners, the stark horseshoe radiator with the depth of gleam that comes from polished German silver, they use silver in their radiators without the excessive brilliance of nickel. See, he didn't like... Nickel was too 
shiny. His works are all contrived to please the eye. German silver without the excess brilliance of nickel or the blueness of chromium plating. Set in line with the front axle. A long, tapered, subtly tapered, louvered bonnet tapering subtly back. The walnut-rimmed steering wheel of exactly the right proportions. Everything was perfectly uh, thought of in aesthetics. And behind, either a short pointed tail in the Grand Prix or Grand Sport models, and that's the one I saw, or some fine example of the coach builder's art on most of the touring models. All of these and much more detail combined to totally delight the eye, even when the eye has absolutely no interest in the mechanical parts. And that's the point. You don't have to care about cars to, to be excited by a Bugatti. If part of the mystique arises from this aesthetic stimulus, a further factor must surely be the total performance of Bugatti cars. See, he also believed in them running, uh, except an occasional model where the master erred, like all other artists, he had his bad days. Many find the noise itself appealing, the strange, subtle whir of the engine, the sharp, angry bark of the exhaust, which arises from Bugatti's lifelong preoccupation with large exhaust valves and piping. The road holding and steering are, of course, superb. Uh, with special tread compounds and so on, these cars will stand by any contemporary design. A Type 57 is a bit harsh when driven over rough French roads, and a GP appallingly so. But in terms of speed, and acceleration, a few Bugatti models can look most modern in the face, and so on. But the point is that the Bugatti has slowly gotten to be a total mystique. If you've, if you've never if seen a Bugatti, or know what a Bugatti is, uh, there's no way for me to describe a Bugatti, except by the use of that particular quote. Uh, and, and he turned out comparatively few automobiles. Uh, naturally, they were all hand-built, and they, they, they were turned out very, very briefly. And his cars uh, dominated the tracks, too. They were great racing machines. They dominated the tracks of their period for a time. And uh, whenever the Bugattis were running, of course, people came from thousands of miles just to hear them and to see them go by. The famous 35 Cs, uh, which is a classic uh, Bugatti racing type. Uh, is, is still today one of the most sought-after cars. And, and every Bugatti, the Bugatti Owners Association of the World, every bu known Bugatti is cataloged. So there's no way for you to go find a Bugatti in the junkyard. If you do, it's like finding an, a, another, uh, let's say, finding a, a, a Vermeer that nobody knew about. In fact, they've even gotten the old factory records, and they've found out where every car which he built in his time where it was delivered, and they've traced down what happened to it, just like any work of art, uh, through various owners, and then eventually some of them disappeared, just like many art, you know, like many paintings do. It disappeared. It was lost in a fire, or, or it was lost in a crash, or one thing and another. And so today, every Bugatti in the world is on file somewhere. And the Bugatti Club has its... It's really not a club. It's kind of like a devoted... Uh, monastic order <laughs> and uh, and they devote themselves to uh, to uh, to keeping this this thing they, they're preserving the works of the master and if uh, 
if, uh, if Bugatti doesn't get his ultimate just due, I mean, as a great artist of the 20th century, a, a wider just due, you see. It's curious that he worked in one of the most popular forms of all time, the automobile. And yet his name is very little known among, you know, the average person, even people who like art. I would suspect that the average museum art-goer doesn't know the name Bugatti. And yet his, his name should stand next to Brancusi, who also worked in modern steel forms and so on. Uh, and uh, Ettore Bugatti. Now, I don't know, know why I particularly felt like doing this show tonight, uh, except that uh, I was sitting in my office and I had this volume of uh, a work about Bugatti. If you'd like to see it, the the uh, I think it's a Ballon, yeah, it's Ballantine's Illustrated History of the Car series, Mark Book Number One. The first one they did was Bugatti, and uh, it's a dollar book. I don't know where you can get copies of it, but you can read a little bit about this, and and uh, you can see pictures of his fantastic automobiles and the strange mystique that developed around the whole world of Bugatti, but. Uh, I would venture to say that the average person today who really feels he knows art, I mean, uh, who, who does, too, does not know the name of Ettore Bugatti, the great golden bug. Bugatti, B-U-G-A-T-T-I, the maestro. <laughs> 